A lot of people are feeling the pressure, like I, I have to be COVID related or else I am, I am irrelevant in today's society. And in some sense that may be true, but you have to be careful of square peg round hole, right? I think staying, tr staying true, right, to your, what, what I like to call your true north, right? What is your path? The path you were on before is the path you are still on for most companies, majority of Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we talk about the entrepreneurs shaping the future of health and the health moonshots they are working to achieve. I'm Logan Plaster, Editor-in-Chief at Startup Health. Much has been said and written here at Startup Health and elsewhere about how in healthcare there's pre-COVID and there's post-COVID. Regulations, reimbursement, consumer attitudes, and just basic human norms have shifted dramatically in the last few months. Mass adoption of telemedicine has made headlines, but telemedicine is just the tip of the iceberg. Understanding those trends and the opportunities they create for entrepreneurs is the subject of today's podcast. To get the candid advice of an industry pro, we turned to Alyssa Jaffe, VP at Sevenwire Ventures. Sevenwire is an early stage venture fund headquartered in Chicago, and they're a big reason why Lavongo came into existence. The conversation you'll hear today is between Jaffe and Barry Krein, Startup Health's Chief Strategy Officer. It took place during a recent expert office hour session that we hosted for the health transformers in the startup health community. But Jaffe's advice was so spot on and honest that we couldn't help sharing it with a wider audience on this podcast. And with that, I'll turn it over to Barry Krein. Enjoy. Yeah, hi everybody and welcome to today's uh, office hour. I'm really excited um, about this, this, this topic because this is really looking at um, some changes that have happened in the regulatory framework and landscape, uh, as well as changes in reimbursement from an investor's like lens and their perspective, and looking at it really from an opportunity perspective for digital health startups. And then the second part of this hour will really deal with um, capital raising in this environment in post-COVID and talk about like the challenges and the landscape and what we see and we're going to get it from a really unique perspective as we're joined by Alyssa Jaffe from Seven Wire Ventures. Alyssa's focus is actually in healthcare uh, investing, really digital health and technology-enabled services uh, that focus on the consumer. Um, and she's with Seven Wire Ventures, who has been a investor in several of our portfolio companies. So I'm going to turn it over first to Alyssa for you to make an introduction. Um, I also see that some of your colleagues are on, so it'd be great if you'd like to introduce them as well. Um, quick bio on me. I'm operator turned investor. So I used to launch enterprise technologies for large health systems. I worked for the advisory board company, if you all know them. Uh, I did solution selling, uh, managed teams um, over a couple of technologies I had, left there, went to business school. Then I transitioned more to institutional investing, uh, worked for a couple of smaller funds, actually started my own company, raised a small round, about a million bucks for that company. Uh, and then I went to work for the Pritzkers. So JB, who's now governor of Illinois, his brother, Tony, uh, they had about 8 billion AUM, three asset classes. I did exclusively venture, um, predominantly healthcare, uh, and then was recruited out to join the Sevenware team about uh, over a year and a half ago, which is crazy. Um, and so it, it's been great. You know, our fund, and, and I'll talk a lot about our thesis, Barry sort of mentioned in the beginning, 
um, you know, what we call the informed connected health consumer and why it's so powerful today. But on the whole, you know, we're series A investors, we're an operator driven model. So we get, um, we do less deals, we put more capital in and we get very involved with our companies. Um, so we both invest in companies and start companies. So most notably, I think uh, most of you probably know Livongo, which is a company that we had started uh, that we took public last year. And I actually haven't checked today, but today, today's a, always end of quarters are really good days for uh, uh, when you mark on public share price. So fingers crossed that today's a good day for Livongo, but uh, market cap of roughly 7 billion. And our LP base is about 60% strategic. So health plans and providers that are working with us and our companies to really drive value. So, so one of the things I'd love to start out with is because I, I was really impressed with it and thought it was great. And I feel like we we're so lucky you shared it with us. But one of the things Seven Wire did is they actually put together this fantastic resource guide early on in April at the beginning of this whole pandemic and essentially said, hey, here's what's going on. Here's some of the laxing or easing of the regulations and the restrictions. Here's what's changing in reimbursement. And this is what it means. And these are the opportunities that we see for you guys as you know as as digital health companies and this is what you should be taking advantage of and i feel like we're really lucky that you shared us with it you update it on your blog post so we can we can um put a link in here and you can constantly see it being updated but i would love for you to share with us maybe some of your top five opportunities or where you see, you know, the ability for these digital health companies to go and like what doors are opened and just share with us some of the things like we were your portfolio companies that you really wanted to foster. You know, it's interesting as, as we think about healthcare and, and, you know, it, it takes me back all the way to when I was in healthcare during ACA, right. And how quickly things were moving as you know, the Affordable Care Act and what the definition of value-based care was. And I don't think I've ever seen our broken, stodgy, difficult industry move as quickly as we have in COVID, right? And I think there is tremendous opportunity. Now, there's also some things that are a bit scary, and I do think some of this will get pulled back. But on the whole, market tailwinds are there, and they are most dominantly there for digital health. Right, and for the work that you all are doing. And so we're seeing things, um, you know, CMS, FDA, you know, HIPAA regulations um, across the board are all relaxing a lot of existing standards. We're seeing on the telehealth side, visits are now being reimbursed for the same rate as in-person visits. Um, you know, I think it was a stat that Cleveland Clinic did 80% of their visits completely virtual, right? There's, there's, there is a shift in how we're thinking about the consumption of healthcare, and ultimately that shift should play to our favor. Um, you know, FDA has also been interesting, and you know, I we, I spend a little bit of time on on device more as a device as it means for a data collection. So I'm not probably the best person to talk to to go through the actual process, but we are seeing a lot of folks going through this or digital therapeutics, um, how they're going to position um, virtual symptom trackers are now starting to see this as accelerates. And so, you know, your question for me is, what, what do I see as the major opportunities? And I think it's probably threefold for the companies on this call. One is, it's gonna be the ability to, to highlight 
your core offerings, right? So for the companies that are, you know, we think about empowering consumers to be stewards of their own health. Healthcare meeting you where you are, right? There's a lot of companies that are now focused on that. You know, one of our companies, um, and I'll, I'll use examples from my portfolio just because um, obviously that's who I'm closest to, but I'm happy to also use other companies I've seen in market that I think are interesting. So, um, you know, keep, keep me honest of, of making sure I'm um, giving the array there, but ultimately, so, you know, we're seeing um, Higgy who just had a partnership with Babylon, right? And so now that they're actually creating this new digital front door. And so, and as, you know, Higgy also has some in-person stations, right? But as economies start to open up, as you start to think about where those are, they're mostly located in community centers, in grocery stores, right? In, um, you know, religious institutions, like places that people are frequenting yeah. in a way that you, we, it's not like we don't need access to this data anymore, right? We still do need access to this type of information. So I think we're seeing the, the piece on how do, you, how do you actually show your core offering and show how you can be transformative? Second is how do you attract new customers through expansion? particularly on expansion new geographies. So obviously this new regulation, um, a lot more leniency as it relates to, you know, cross-function and where services can actually be rendered. And so we're seeing companies who historically had a lot of pressure put on them in terms of, you know, the type of, let's say you have a certain type of provider that you're trying to hire or you're actually delivering a clinical service. One of our companies, NoCD, was doing that, right? And it's a pretty cumbersome process to go through the state licensing process. And so now as we see those, those barriers starting to lift, we're actually getting a ton of tailwinds from payers where we say, you know, oh, sorry, payer, you know, we, we can only support this one state. Now we actually can support multiple states, all 50 states, right? And that ends up being an accelerant to attract those new customers and new jobs. Um, you know, the third piece I'll say expansion of capabilities. So um, we're seeing this like I've actually found this to be the most interesting, but also the one that can be a little bit scary, right? Um, a lot of people are feeling the pressure, like I, I have to be COVID related or else I am, I am irrelevant in today's society. And in some sense that may be true, but you have to be careful of square peg round hole, right? And so I think staying, tr staying true, right, to your, what, what I like to call your true north, right? What is your path? The path you were on before is the path you are still on for most companies, majority of companies. But there are opportunities, you know, Livongo has done this. Um, we've seen a lot of like Everly Well, I know that company. Um, obviously, they have the ability to now actually be a COVID test. Um, you know, we're seeing like Papa, uh, if you guys know them, in, in more of the MA space with seniors, they're doing virtual visits. So all these companies are staying true to their core, but actually are expanding some of their capabilities to take advantage of the situation that is, you know, the, the current COVID-19. But one of the questions was, how has reimbursement shifted towards wellness services, i.e. coaching, nutrition, functional medicine, if at all? I would put massage, meditation, all that. That piece. Yeah, um, yeah what, what, what are you guys seeing and, and what are your thoughts with respect to that? I mean, we're, I, I think it, this actually isn't COVID related. I think the, the trends were already happening before this. Um, and I think that there's actually significant appetite to start doing things outside of the four walls of the hospital. And so, 
you're starting to see employers, right? And those partnerships, I think that's where kind of like the early innovators, like most of the um, meditation apps, right? Their first partners were not payers, they were employers. And that's for a reason, right? There's sort of a dual benefit. There's the um, healthcare component, right? But then there's also the maybe wellness and employee retention um, that they also cared about. We're seeing, um, I don't think, personally, I don't think premiums are going to go down. And so payers now have to find more to fill the, the large costs that are being, that are, that are being paid into those entities. Right. And so you look at this in MA, like, I think that's one of the perfect examples you talk. So we started a company in aging in place and really because when we, when we were looking at the market originally, we looked at a ton of solutions. We just didn't feel like there was anything out there, decided to pull it together. And, you know, from where we were, you know, call it four or five years ago to where we are today, right? MA has taken off in terms of what is actually being reimbursed by plans. And so you are seeing, you know, this, this broader view of treating the whole person is what we like to call it. Um, and I think the regulatory environment follows that. It just takes time, right? And it takes the first movers and it takes data and I think that's also a challenge is many of those companies were consumer first in sometimes a positive way, but like I don't typically invest in direct to consumer businesses. And there's a reason a direct a DTC business is built very differently than a B2B business, right? And so when we look at those direct to consumer businesses that have to then generate real outcomes data, they don't have attribution. They don't aren't able to close loop. And so ultimately they're kind of put in a situation where you know, they're, they're maybe disadvantaged of getting larger healthcare-based contracts. Great. Have you seen willingness of patients to loosen their HIPAA-related, uh, their HIPAA data, i.e. share their healthcare data if benefits them or it's for the benefit of public health? What, do you see any trends there? Yeah. I actually never thought the HIPAA constraint was on the, the consumer side. I think it's... Um, I think consumers have, have a much bigger willingness to share data. Like if you think about how much data we share on a generalized basis, this is a side anecdote, but I went to see before COVID, I went to see um, Second City here in Chicago is like an improv comedy show. And they did a little bit where they called somebody out in the audience and they guessed all these things about this person and everything was wrong. And then they went to the next person and they guessed everything right. They knew her name, her husband, where she lived, um, you know, her, the kids' names, the, the hobbies. I mean, and it, this one was like, whoa. And then they realize, you realize it's because they just Googled this one. They knew who was sitting in that seat. And, and it was done in a comedic form, but it's, it's, it's a bit frightening. So I actually don't think that consumers are the constraint. Um, I think it is our inability for how we have connectivity and how to share. And I think it's the lack of, um, the structure for consumers to to own their data in a way that still can be powerful across the system. And until we're able to bridge that gap, to me, that's that's one of the, the biggest blind spots versus consumer appetite. I do think consumers are like, there's a lot going on right now about facial recognition when it's appropriate, when it's not, especially as there's biases associated with it. So I think consumers are aware but I don't think that they're unengaged with wanting to share information if it batters their own health. What are you seeing about remote patient monitoring, like collecting glucose levels? Yes. Wow. There's this great company called Lavango. I've heard of it. Yeah. Um, so. Nobody 
I, I see the faces of the silent chuckles. I know most of them. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have, our, so our thesis, maybe this is a good point to talk about it. So the informed, connected health consumers. I talked about yeah. informed consumers to be stewards of their own health. And what this means is, you know, you have to get access to data and information that gets yourself from sick care to well care. That there's a lot of solutions in market that are very interesting and actually can make a lot of money on rev cycle management, provider efficiencies, right? Back office management. Um, but ultimately for me and what I care about in the world I am trying to build is the end engagement of a consumer to be able to get themselves better. Like full stop, right? That healthcare meets them where they are, wherever they are. And so for me, remote patient monitoring, while is a buzzword, like that, that, is, a, that is the way of life that we're trying. And, and I continue to, you know, the last deal I did, a company called Clarify Medical, it's basically trying to build the bongo, but for chronic skin. And it, it's the same thesis, right? I, I keep going back over and over to this thesis that the ability to actually understand what's happening in the context of, you know, a patient's home, a patient's life, a consumer, a person, right? Not just a patient, but a person who is getting themselves into well care is incredibly important. So I'm a fan, if that's my, my headliner to your question is, I'm a fan. Thank you. Um, can you share more on how Medicaid is opening up more nationally instead state to state? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's been interesting what we've been seeing on the Medicaid side, particularly as it relates to some of the plans and what CMS is doing. You know, I'm not as close to saying where I think, you know, tailwinds or headwinds are going to go, you know, specific to COVID-related entities. But, you know, on the whole, as we think about, you know, for example, social determinants, right? We think about communications platforms. And now we're starting to see you know, we have a company, again, a lot of my examples are going to be in the context of, of the work that I do and the companies I work with, but one of our companies, Consejo Sano, um, you know, they are a communications platform for multicultural populations, and this organization is actually working with, you know, Blue Shield of California, right, to focus on, you know, the underserved population, to focus on the Medicaid population, to think about how engagement should work in those drivers, or do eligibles, right? And so there, I think that there are, COVID, COVID is just capitalizing and accelerating tailwinds that, in my opinion, already existed. You know, I, I went back and looked at a lot of the things I wrote a couple of years ago. You know, we raised our first fund on the informed, connected health consumer. This isn't like a, a thesis that I just, you know, pulled out of thin air in the last six months. And I, it's so, there are, there are real opportunities that have been there. And this is just, shining a glaring spotlight on those opportunities. Great. So this is an interesting, I actually think this is a great question, but so there's been so many changes. Do you, what, what do you see is going to happen in this regulatory environment? Do you think that there will be a continual, like continuation of these, like relaxing of requirements and increased reimbursements? Or do you think like, what, what changes do you expect may even revert back to, you know, uh, to, to pre-COVID days, post-COVID versus persist long-term? What, what, what do you like, think? Do I think it's going to be the wild, wild west forever? Uh, yes, no. Anything, right? I, well, we all dream that, like, now we're talking about getting a vaccine in, in 12 months. Like, okay, 
Like, I love to see that world. Please show me a world where, where we can do that. But um, basically where, where I fall is, and I know I, I, I'm creating kind of a consistent messaging, but I think that what is here to stay was already in motion pre-COVID, right? What is not is what became a bit more fad focused in terms of this heightened sense of we have to do something now. So I'll give an example of the latter, but as we talk about what's HIPAA compliant and what platforms you use, do I think providers are forever going to be able to use Facebook Messenger and Zoom and, right, like, it's great we're all on Zoom today. Maybe Zoom will create, you know, a healthcare-focused product because of this, but I ultimately know I think that's going to be pulled back. I think that we've created some relaxants that become a bit dangerous, right, in our ability and our, our desire to move quickly. Um, but on the whole, do I think that remote patient monitoring, telemedicine, telehealth are going to be encouraged? Yes. Do I think that the geographic boundaries of states are going to start to fade as we think about populations? Yes. Do I think CMS is going to do a better job and payer mixes are going to expand, you know, as we think about coverage? Yes. Um, but all of those things, you know, were, were underway. What's hard to predict and how fat, like, you know, as I think about kind of this, the slope of this curve, you know, where it, where it slopes and, and how steep that slope is going to be as we come back down. And I hope we're not coming down to the same level we started at, but I hope that there, you know, some of the, these accelerants are, are here. Do you see, so this is just kind of a uh, transition question. I don't see many more regulatory specific questions um, in the chat. Do you see COVID-19 changing interest and investment in social determinants of health, given that certain populations have been disproportionately affected? Another great question. That's a great question, and I, um, I hope that it puts a spotlight on something that has needed to be funded and reimbursed for a very long time. Like, I, um, I will be disappointed if we don't keep investing dollars in this space for a lot of reasons, right? From an investor perspective, because I think there's high returns that can be generated. Um, from a, a, a consumer of healthcare and, you know, how I think it's going, and from a citizen of the United States of how we should be helping those who cannot always help. So um, I hope so. I think so. Um, the challenge is what exactly and how exactly those investments are made on the investor side. Like some of the bigger infrastructure players, I think, have been chosen, right, have gotten a lot of dollars. But I do think that there's more um, platform plays around whether it be communication, um, you know, navigation, engagement that that's still up for grabs. Yeah, no, I, I think we see that too, even from an onboarding perspective. Um, so shifting like to this investment landscape, what what can you just like give us and you know through your eyes, and then I'd love to hear it really from Seven Wires you know, individual perspective, how the investment landscape has changed and how in particular yours may have and what you're looking at differently. Yeah. So um, I'll talk about many, two things. I'll talk about um, process, appetite for, con I guess, kind of thematic areas, if that's helpful. Everybody has to have a COVID-related slide in your deck. If you pretend that we, this, we are not in this world and this is not existing, right, it's going to come up in Q&A and I'm going to be thinking the whole time that it's very weird that you didn't talk about it. 
particularly if you are a company on one end of the spectrum, right? Both ends, right? Side one is your company is, you know, vital sign tracking and it's perfect for COVID, yet you mentioned nothing about why that's going to be important, right? And return to work and all that type of thing. Or on the other side, you are selling into providers in an inpatient setting, you know, something that requires you know, a lot of human touch, right? Like, I'm going to be thinking the whole time, why are we not talking about how this potentially could be affecting your business as well? Um, so I do think that you have to lean into the times, to the environment. Again, I use ACA. I think that's like one of the easiest, you know, analogs here of it was weird that nobody wanted to talk about you know, how their solution was going to work in a value-based care environment, even though, let's remember, over 10 years ago, we were still in fee-for-service. Today, we're still in fee-for-service. So, you know, it's, it's making sure that you are communicating in a language that is top of mind for an investor. Um, that said, I do not want to see a COVID-specific solution that only survives in COVID. Like, I'm not investing in any COVID-direct tests which I think is great. We need more. Please, please, for those who are building, I would love for that to keep happening. But eventually that becomes commoditized. Or if that test cannot be transitioned, right? What is that business beyond this? Because when I invest in a company, I'm a series A investor, right? So what I'm investing in is the next five, seven, maybe 10, hopefully not, but maybe 10 years, right? So I'm looking at that horizon. I'm looking at what's gonna happen over the next seven years of time. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're coming out of this well before and I need to better understand. So that's a bit kind of thematically um, process. So I, I think that, you know, we were talking a little bit about this. I think um, valuations are, are coming down a little bit. Um, I think that there are more reasonable expectations, but, but here's probably the main reason why is, um, not that it's like I can take advantage of all these companies that need cash. And if that's the case, like shame on those firms, because that's just like not how we should be working. It's more about urgency. Um, and again, I, I kind of come from a go-to-market background. I always think about things in the sense of framing, urgency and timing and, um, you know, how you think about your messaging. And it is, there's less of a sense of urgency. I think that investors sort of feel like, yeah, this is interesting, but I can take my time, right? There's no, um, I'm flying to the West Coast next week and I have three partner meetings scheduled. So, you know, chip chop, get on your diligence to make a decision if you want to issue a term sheet, right? And because of that, that is then effectively bringing down valuations because you're effectively bringing down potentially competition. And so I've thought a lot about this and we can talk more of like, what, what are we doing to create urgency? How are companies creating urgency in this environment and still moving forward in their fundraises despite us being in a virtual environment? Now, there's also a lot of benefits of COVID in investing, right? Like investors get very distracted. Um, you can often be lazy, right? Like it's hard to read a lot. It's hard to go through data rooms. Not everybody likes to do it, right? And go through everything. And you know, that maybe they're traveling, if they're at a conference or, you know, and then a couple of weeks go by and then they get distracted. In today's world, we're all here. Like I see every, everybody's eyeballs, proverbial eyeballs, right? Of, um, you have almost in a unique sense, more undivided attention in COVID 
Um, and the question is, you know, how are founders using that? And are they using it in an appropriate way? So that, that's kind of as I think about you know, the, the, the two pieces of COVID and fundraising, um, if that's all. Right. That, that, there was a lot of useful information in there. Um, one of the things that I found that like jumped out at me and one of the things that we've heard a lot internally was this about direct versus non-direct impact with COVID and how do you bring that up and communicate it and frame it. And you like hit it head on by saying you got to have something in your deck. That's got to be one of your pages. How do you frame it, though, when you're not directly COVID related? Like, how far, you know, do you go? How much do you have to complete the circle? Like, can you can you give us a little bit of guidance on that? And then also related to that is how, how do investors look at these companies with short term COVID related growth and whatnot? Like, I, I think it's hard to navigate right now. And yeah. plus, companies are pivoting and might not be in their long-term, you know, offering mode. Yes. I think, remember the themes we went back to that made, um, that were made to be accelerants because of COVID, right? Remote patient monitoring, you know, telehealth, right? Meeting patients where they are. Like, th that is how I think about framing in the context of COVID, right? You know, our company, NoCD, right, has had tremendous growth in COVID, um, tremendous tailwinds because of obviously they, their providers now can service more patients, right? But they're not a test for COVID, right? They are a behavioral health platform for severe mental illness focused on OCD, right? And so it is about saying why, right? Why in the, the context of where we are as a society, that people are home, right? That they aren't going into it. So if you're focused on and why are you helping to make that when they have to go in to see their provider, you're helping to make that the most effective, efficient, and high quality visit possible, right? Because people are still going and people have to still go. People have to engage in a lot of other ways, right? So it's just, it's understanding where, where our society is today versus saying like, you know, to me, there's a lot of naivety if, if an investor's saying, I only want to invest in a test. Right. I only want to invest in a diagnostic um, that either tells you if you have COVID or an antibody. Okay, there's plenty. If you're doing that, that's awesome. Like sell, sell as many as you can, as fast as you can, and try and like kind of keep some of that cash to figure out what you're going to do after all this. Right. But I think on the whole, for most of you on this call, and I see some familiar faces, right, most of you are affected in some way. And it's just about storytelling and storytelling it in a way that's gonna be interesting for an investor. Your second question, Barry, what does that mean for, you know, how do you explain away or explain to certain things? You know, that's, that sort of depends on when you're fundraising, right? Because COVID, you know, Q2 of this year, right? A lot happened to a lot of people. So first thing is, if you maybe negatively, if your revenues dropped, that's unfortunate, that's very hard, but did you recover, right? Can you recover in Q3? Because now we're sort of entering into a new world where it looks like we're gonna be in this phase of COVID-19 for a very long time, um, or at least probably the next year. And so if you can tell an interesting narrative of how you came out of it, no, I don't, I don't discount the three months that, you know, for, yes, because providers like literally their hair was on fire and they had, you know, did not know what to do 
and they were trying to set up, you know, hospitals in McCormick Place, which if any of you have been there at a conference, like, yeah, whew, good job to all the amazing people that did that work. So, okay. <laughs> On the flip side, if you are a company that sought amazing growth, right, and an accelerant, can you maintain that, right? Can you show now that we are entering into July, right? Can you show that that growth is sustainable? And that's the thing. If I can't see trend lines, I don't invest in peaks and valleys. I invest in trends. Like investing is not pointillism. It is linear, right? And this is exponential, right? We're looking at, at growth curves and we're looking for how it moves. And so I'm not going to fault you for one bad month or one great thing or that's not how I should be evaluating. And, and again, I'm one person. I'm going to have a lot of opinions because my whole job is to have opinions. Um, and it's important to talk to a lot of people like me to get different perspectives. Um, but from my perspective, like that, that is not, you know, a, the, the right work and the right investor hygiene is making sure I understand the trend line of your business. So for obvious reasons, Livongo is near and dear to your heart. This is one of the questions. What is your policy for evaluating other RPM companies in overlapping and non-overlapping verticals? How do you recommend RPM companies approach investors that already have RPM companies in their portfolio? Sure. Remote patient monitoring to me is like the most overarching like buzzword. Like I, I hope that that a hundred percent of my portfolio has some type of RPM in there at some point. Like, you know, am I doing another specific diabetes company, you know, as a standalone investment? I'm never going to say no, but is the bar higher? Probably. What I love about Seven Wire and our fund, um, and again, I've worked for a lot of institutional investment firms and, and there's sort of no rules at Seven Wire. Like we, we're investors, we're operators, we start companies, we, you know, we merge companies, we, we just do a lot of really creative stuff, which is like so fun for me. And so typically what I do is I'm very upfront. And I, if, if you are coming to me and you're saying, you know, I have a solution specifically for diabetes, and this is what I do, like, I'm going to engage the Livongo team, right? I'm going to see if it's interesting for them. Um, you know, aging in place, we have an investment in company, HomeThread, like, very upfront to say, we are always looking for partners for that company. If it's really interesting, I would evaluate something as an acquisition, right, for our companies. Um, but I, I wouldn't use, to me, there's less, like, trickery in terms of, um, uh, you know, I, I don't ever look at something like in a pretending that it's in one lens when it actually is, you know, in, in the broader context of my portfolio. But if you, if you came to me and said, hey, like, I've developed another, you know, health monitoring kiosk that uh, is creating the digital front door and getting you know, this type of biometric data from consumers, I'm going to say like, I already have an investment in Higgy, right? And so you have to sort of you have to think about and do your homework on the investor side of, do I see it as competitive? Do I see it as complementary, Or do I see the market so big, like remote patient monitoring, that you can live and coexist very comfortably in that same space, right? That's like saying you invested in one telehealth business, right? Or telemedicine company, like you're never going to invest in another. And I, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's more on care delivery than it is around you know, a specific investment mechanism. So 
So one of the things that we've heard is initially investors um, who still had large, you know, funds raised and, and money to invest sat back and sort of looked at their own portfolio to see what the needs would be, uh, you know, in the near future or probably within the next couple of years. I know you do Series A. I assume you also continue to invest given how you lean in so strongly to your companies from an operational standpoint through you know, further later, later rounds. How, how does somebody like, and what kind of recommendation? And so setting, stepping back for a second. So one of the things was, is, you know, we encourage all the portfolio companies to continue to get in front of and continue to build relationships with all these investors and VCs so that they get to know them for later investors investments when they're you know now looked at their portfolio and know what they comfortably can spend what recommendations do you have for these entrepreneurs raising capital today to get your attention i know you said like oh these are the things i'd like to invest in and things like that but how do you really break through in today's environment and stand out the process has changed incredibly uh, as there's no more in-person diligence everything's virtual how how a do you do that and b how do you like Alyssa? how do you and how do other investors get comfortable with making an investor you know so much of it is like backing the entrepreneur how do you get comfortable mm -hmm. in the world sure so so let me break that down into a couple of things one is how do you get in front of me right um two is when you are in front of me and it's zoom-based fundraising what are you doing so uh so how do you get in front of me when you are in front of me what's happening um and then the the last piece and now I, I got distracted. It's a comfort. How do you make somebody really? Oh, how do I, how do I make a decision? Got it. Okay. Um, so you've heard this from many people. Startup Health is an amazing organization that probably gives you a ton of guidance. You get in front of me through a warm introduction, right? Um, and, and here's why, right? Because it, it's the fastest way. It is the easiest way. Um, it is the quickest way to get on my calendar. Um, it is... Uh, it, it shows you did your, your work, right? And so if you cannot get a warm introduction, which is many times, right, um, what are you doing? And my biggest thing is do your homework, right? Um, you go on my, our website, you can read all about me, you can read all about our companies, and you can read the millions of things that we've posted and we've written, right? If there is nothing on there that signals that I would be a good investor for your business, I am probably not the right person to talk to, right? Now, you may wanna talk for other reasons. You may wanna talk because I'm connected to somebody you know. You may wanna talk because you want more generalized advice. Um, you know, you may wanna talk because um, you're pivoting and you wanted to, to think through, like, if you were to do something, would that be interesting? But at the end of the day, you know, my, my recommendation is the, the highest hit rate that you can get is not through spray and pray right? It is through a little bit of due diligence on understanding not only the funds that you're going after, but the people, the investors. Like I used to work for a generalist fund, okay? There were people that fund who knew zero about healthcare, right? If you're reaching out to them, they're just going to forward it to me, right? Which is fine, but there creates some disconnect. And through just a little bit of homework, you probably could have figured out your fastest, most direct course of action. And so, I will always tell people this, um, you know, I, I, 
uh, I do a lot of things like, like I hate, um, some people love LinkedIn messages. Um, and I'm okay with LinkedIn messages, except for if I know that you can, you could have done a little bit of work to get my email. For example, you know, um, I speak at like a lot of the, the business schools. I went to business school and you know, there's always people inevitably after that send me a LinkedIn message and my email is posted on the directory. So all they had to do was literally type in my name in the directory and fine. But yeah, and I just, um, I'll still respond. I respond to everything. Like I really, really try. LinkedIn's a little bit harder for me just from a process perspective, but um, and, and from, a, from an email, like I work every day to get to inbox zero. And that means I respond to every single email that I get. And um, it's important for me. It's important for our firm and you know, how we think about communicating with the market. But your odds, you know, I used to work for a fund that got about hmm, 50 to 100 inbounds to our website a day, and we did not invest in a single one of those deals, right? And that's just, I'm just telling you this because of the probability game, right? Um, in, increase your odds, enhance your odds, and that's how you become interesting. You become interesting when you, when you are the best fit for the right investor. Because you all have the right investor out there. For whatever business you're building, there are people that have built you know, similar companies that are looking to do it again. Especially, right, the most interesting is, hey, saw you guys did Livongo. We're doing Livongo. This is how we did Clarify, this chronic skin. Like, they sent it to us, and we basically were like, oh, my God, we can do this again. Like, this deal is Livongo for chronic skin. And that's why we leaned in, Right. And it was a weird kind of deal at the time. And, you know, it wasn't like the most beautiful deck you'd ever seen, but we were the best fit. And that's what kind of drives it. So, so that's, that's one on how to get in front of me. I'll move to Zoom. You're making the most of your Zoom time, but let me pause there, Barry, if, if you have any follow-up or if that made sense. Yeah, I, just a quick question. I don't know if you want to share it with us. What exactly is your sweet spot right now? What, what yeah. is your wish list? What would you be investing in? Like, what, what do you want to see? Yeah, I will tell you that if, if you are a company raising a series A, our initial check is three to five, seven to 10 over the life, and you actually fit our thesis of the informed, connected health consumer, and you have real revenue that you're looking to scale, right? You are looking, you, 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 the flywheel is going and it needs to just go faster. I will take that call every single time, right? Unless for some reason it's like actually competitive and then I would bring it up to you and I'd say, oh, hey, we have something in the MSK space already, do you feel comfortable with that? Does our company feel comfortable? Right, let me take it. But is it to me is, if, it, is, it is rare of how many companies, how few companies end up even just fitting that thesis. And um, I think a lot of companies, you know, our thesis is a bit hard for people to grasp. Like, they're like, oh, we work with patients, but really it's a provider tool. Like, I need it to be something that, again, I'll, I'll say this a million times and I'll still talk to folks where, and again, it's a bit nuanced, but if, it, if a consumer isn't getting access to their own data to make their own healthcare decision, right, to empower themselves, be informed and connected to their own health decision, not in these as well. Great. So before we move on to that fund, Zoom and fundraising through Zoom and how that's changed, how are you viewing digital health companies that are selling to providers and health systems given the financial compression on these stakeholders. Right. 
Um, you know, it's tough. Like I, I will say that there is some hesitancy to say, are, you know, are you, and what kind of solution are you selling to providers, right? That, that's kind of the bigger thing to me is like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Providers have always been hard to sell to. I used to do, I used to launch technology specifically to providers. Like I promise you, I, and for those who are going through this, like this isn't a new world that like it's, it takes sometimes 12 to 18 months to get them to do anything. Um, it's just, they, I think they, they're in a moment like Q2 when the hair was on fire and the cash was on fire, right? It was very distracting. I find providers are now coming back into normalcy of a generally still very long sales process, not a COVID long sales process. And so I think um, my feedback is, unless you have to raise right now, right? What are you showing in Q3? What did you show in Q1? And what are you showing in Q3? And are you showing the trend line? And if Q2 dipped because they just obviously like your contracts pushed or they didn't have the time and attention, I understand that. But if, if we can't recover now, I, I am worried that then you may never be able to. And so it becomes tougher to put dollars into that type of business. But we have a couple of companies who sell the providers, right? Like, Piggy has relationships with providers too. Um, and they sold a couple of contracts in COVID. And I've seen a lot of companies been able to do this because they've still been able to continue moving forward because again, the tailwinds of what this environment is still remain. Um, and so they've been able to make things. But it's a challenge. You have to overcome it. And back to my earlier point, like you, you have to address it up front. If you don't talk about it initially, the whole time, that's what I'm going to be thinking about. And then my, my attention is a bit separated from where it should be because I've been asking myself the same question for most of the information. Okay, quickly, do you think self-insured employers' perspectives will change in regard to the types of benefits they decide to offer their employees? And then I wanna wrap back into the capital raising. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I do, um, and I, I hope so, but I think employers need to I think employers need to take on more risk. Like employers need to actually get, um, they've done a great job in the wellness world. And, you know, look, Livongo was built off of this. And so I think we're seeing something interesting coming from it. Um, but I, I would hope that they would move faster and I would hope that they would take on more. Um, and I think the buying process now has become different than what it was when we started Livongo. Like the broker world is much heavier and more complex and gatekeeper-esque than it used to be. And so I think it's, it's becoming a bit harder to navigate and to be a solution in the arsenal without going through the broker. But I think it's still possible. And those that have broken through, I think it actually is pretty interesting. I've also seen folks go the opposite, going top down, actually going first through the, the payer and then going through their national account. So, so you made a statement in your last response about if you have to raise now. So is it raise now or raise later if you don't have to? And historically, all these investors typically yeah. off in summer's really quiet. What's the deal do you see there? And then I definitely want to leave some time because I want you to focus on Zoom fundraising and like a little bit of nuggets of information on how to do that best successfully. Sure. sure. Yeah, let's, we can save some time for, for do's and don'ts. Yeah. Um, 
here's kind of what you, okay, everyone's in their own cash situation, right? So I can't speak to that. Like when COVID hit, I'm sure everyone looked at their books and said, okay, how can we extend if we need to extend? Like if you're going to raise today, I'm going to tell you like try and raise for 18, 24 months because you just never know. And if you have the demand for today, take it. Like I'll always say that to people. I will always say, do the exercise yourself, do the math. Don't do the ego exercise of what you want your valuation to do to be because it sounds pretty. Do the math of how much cash you really, really like you need and you need plus, right? Do the math on the dilution it's going to be and how material that's going to be for you. And that's how the decision should be, right? Um, but here's the thing. You have to plan for a longer fundraise. As I mentioned at the outset, like urgency is not as strong today. That is the biggest thing that I have seen in the Zoom-based fundraising, that fundraising processes, and that may pick up as, you know, folks have to deploy, but at least for right now, like not, investors aren't feeling like they have to work until one in the morning to get a term sheet out to you the next day. And so with the lack of urgency, inevitably it'll take you longer. We always say a series A is three to six months, right? So you may be on the longer end of that if it takes that long, right? And so um, some people don't always have the luxury of, of choosing, right, when they fundraise, if you're going to be out of cash in like seven months, you, you've got to start thinking about your funds. Um, then there's sort of this like interesting hybrid where I think, um, you know, people sort of fall like, I think, you know, I could start now or I could start like three months from now. And my, my push is don't, don't worry about investors being here or gone, right? Don't worry about who's on vacation. First of all, I don't, you know, most people like, maybe if they're on vacation, like they're not doing anything, right? Nobody is anywhere. So I, I think it's, I wouldn't worry about starting a raise in the summer. Like all that stuff to me is so much less pertinent. It's really about the business and where you are. And if your business is telling a story today that's very compelling, right? People need to deploy capital. Investors, have, especially funds, take a look at the funds who've raised big funds, right? They've got to get that capital out the door. They have to get it out of the door at a pace in which they can deploy it and then raise their next fund. And so if you can command that type of, you know, appetite, it might behoove you to start that now. Um, secondly, you know, we had this conversation with one of our companies where is something material is going to be materially different by waiting, you know, three or four months to start your fund, right? And you have to look at your data. You have to look at what's going to happen. Are you about to sell like three huge contracts that should come in in Q3? Then may, maybe you should wait because that's going to tell a much more compelling story. But are you just going to keep growing the way you've been growing? Well, the, again, fundraisers don't happen in a week. Typically, if it does for you, that's amazing. That's like the best thing that could ever happen. But if you're planning on saying, okay, over the next three months, what's going to happen in this fundraise? Well, the market is going to see your three-month trend. When I'm diligencing a deal and I'm talking to them in June, you better believe today's June 30th. Do you know how many companies, I'll probably wait until after the holiday, I will send next week that are in our pipeline and I'll say, how did June go? Send me your actual. And I will compare that to the budget that you sent to me, right? Of what you projected to do in June. So if you kicked it out of the water, right? Knocked it out of the park, whatever. Awesome, right? If you missed, I'm concerned, 
and then I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch to see what happens in July. So what you're fundraising on, you know, you're fundraising real time. And so I, I would just be sort of thoughtful about, is the story going to change materially? And are you giving yourself the runway and the leeway that you need to get the cash and the capital that you need to keep building? Zoom-based fundraising, yes. very different okay. than traditional fundraising. But I'm going to three, three Zoom-based fundraises. This is going to be my final, I'm, I'll do this in two minutes. Three Zoom-based fundraises and uh, two do's and two don'ts, okay? Zoom-based fundraising. When people say, how are you? People actually answer. They don't say, fine, thanks, and you. Like, they're like, well, I'm sitting in my toddler's room and, uh, you know, my life is crazy. And how about you, right? Take note, take advantage of the personal relationships, right? Um, two, Zoom is very fatiguing. Watching yourself talk is, uh, like, I actually thought about today, like, just hiding myself because it's, I find it's so exhausting to watch yourself talk. There have now been studies of how exhausting it is. So think about how you're making it more engaging and you're not just watching yourself speak, but you are actually in a two-way conversation where you are engaging the rest of the audience on the call, right? Um, three, people are at their computers more often, right? Which is good. This is where you are seeing, and customers too. One of our companies has sold more business in COVID than ever before because everybody's around. So be thoughtful about the content you're sharing and how you're sharing it, right? You can be on a call and walk through a deck and someone's not sitting in the middle of an airport. So I think use all of this structure to your advantage. So that's Zoom. Let me move to my do's and don'ts. Uh, and I wrote these down in advance, so um, I was thinking about it. But uh, do, two things. One, uh, I already said this, research me and research your firm. We get on a call, say, oh, remote patient monitoring, you know, Lavongo, I see you're doing that. Clarify, I see you're doing that. This is what we do, right? It goes so far and it makes me take the conversation so much more seriously and hopefully you too. Second is um, know your numbers, know your data. You are the CEO or a leading manager at your organization. If you don't know your data, you're not, you all I'm sure are, are hyper growth companies, but none of you, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, are $7 billion businesses like you should know what your top line revenue is where you ended June. Two things on my don'ts. One, don't bite off more than you can chew, right? Know how a fundraising process works. Have all your ducks in a row. Have your data room ready. Stage your introductions, right? Like, do not try to do 50 intro calls in one week. You are going to be distracted. You are going to be disengaged, and it's not going to serve you well. Don't try to be building the ship as you fly it or plane as you fly it during your fundraising process. Like be thoughtful about the materials that you pulled together before. Don't try and pull your deck together as you're kicking off your process, right? Um, and my final piece of don't is, um, this is sound crazy. Don't lie. You don't mean to. You're so used to telling the customers, like it's on the roadmap. We're getting there. Like I'm an investor. I will get every piece of data you've ever generated and more. And I will look at everything. And so when I learn that your run rate is not 1.5 million and it is actually 200,000, I'm going to be very frustrated, right? Because that's not the space that I invest in, right? That's not the state. And so really be thoughtful about this is a partnership. This is a marriage. I'm on your board for a very long time. You do as much diligence on me as I do on you, right? It's very, very important. So and in Zoom world, like that's kind of the benefit. It gives you the right to do a, take a lot of somebody's time. 
and spend that time with them because you have the time now and really get to know. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 330 companies, go to startuphealth.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.